back to the TF Tuesday podcast. I hope you all have had a good week. And for those of you who were attending Anthrocon over the past few days, I hope you all have had a safe trip home. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest to chat a little bit about art processes and the history of certain tropes within TF, namely Choose Your Own Adventures and TF Horror Movies. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, hello. I'm Kieran. I'm a weird person with a weird obsessive knowledge of things that are tropey in 70s and 90s horror, and also a big TF fan. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think big is an understatement. I can certainly say that. A little obsessive a fan. I'm really glad to have you on. And obviously, a lot of folks will know you as well from the art that you produce. And definitely, I'm interested to get into that too in part of the episode. But, you know, I was curious to ask just kind of to start and to, you know, familiarize those who aren't familiar with your stuff. How did you kind of like get into TF and like where did your interest in transformation stuff really come from? Sure. Weirdly enough, I was basically thrown into TF at a very young age and kind of through horror. So uh, my dad was a very big fan of Stephen King. So we had a lot of Stephen King stuff in the house, like books, and he always watched stuff on TV and, and movies and stuff like that. So maybe when I was six or seven years old, I ended up watching uh, Silver Bullet, which is Stephen King's 1985 werewolf film. Oh, yeah. So if everyone remembers that, it's got the the big confrontation in the trailer, I think. Hopefully my memory is staying, but there's that. And that kind of introduced me to the concept of werewolves and horror, and that was my introduction. I was like, I want to see more of that. And so... As I was growing up as a queer kid, I was like, I kind of really resonate with the like internal struggle of like, there's a side of me that's the outward presenting and there's a side of me that's the inward. And luckily, on top of having really big access to a whole bunch of horror stuff, I had a 15 minute bike ride when I was a kid to both Blockbuster home of lots and lots of horror movies and other movies for people who don't know or who are outside the U.S. It was a video rental chain. And then also a discount bookstore where I get all the 70s and 80s like pulpy fiction that people would just turn in and they'd sell for for 50 cents. So I ended up amassing a large collection of werewolf novels and a large collection of just transformation media and i would just browse through this and i wouldn't think anything of it but it would just incredibly fascinate me and then what happens is when you get access to a computer and a a little bit of an internet connection you were like oh i'm gonna type in werewolf transformation and thus the cascade begins (laughs) it's always the advent of the internet when you realize oh wait there's all these other people who also want to see this thing and then you just enter a whole new world as it was exactly and then because i had been reading these different werewolf novels and these different takes on transformation that changed throughout eras there's like an era of gore that was attributed to like transformational werewolf novels of the 80s 
and then there's a a trend of like keeping a secret of werewolf transformation short stories in the 60s i got a mix of all of those and all of those were like oh these are all my things and i was like oh these can apply to more than werewolves and i was like oh this is my gateway so basically uh you know once bitten by the werewolves there was no going back exactly i was tempted i was hypnotized i was a thrall and, you know, it's so funny, actually, you mentioned the the silver bullet. You know, I had forgotten about the book and the movie until you mentioned it. I feel like you just, like, unlocked a core memory in my mind because I viscerally remember reading that book uh, when I was a lot younger and being like, wow, like, this is so cool. And obviously, you know, as a unknowing TFN was like, damn, it would be so cool to be the werewolf in this situation. So Exactly. I was like, even though the werewolf was the villain and the main characters were fighting against it, I was like, I can't stop rooting for the werewolf. I know, right? Like, again, as as TF fans, we're all like, yeah, the, the werewolf might be the quote-unquote villain here, but, like, also boyfriend material right there. So, like, I don't know. Like, kind of want him to succeed. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You are not wrong. Extreme guilty pleasure. It's funny that you started off with all of that really great old media. You know, there's there's a lot of old media, I think, particularly, you know, like when you mentioned Blockbuster and other like video rental stores. I mean, there were so many cool like older movies and like older literature around transformation that I feel like really influenced our interests pre-internet. And, you know, it it's unfortunate in the sense that a good chunk of that has kind of faded from the cultural landscape as, you know, some of those things may never had made the transition from VHS to digital, or there may be books that really have fallen out of print and folks don't necessarily know about them. So you, you've touched a little bit on what older media did influence you. Are there any that you never were really able to like refine? Like, were there any that as you have, you know, become more cognizant of what influenced you, you look back and you go, oh, that was something that was really formative to me that I've never then actually been able to track down again. So a lot of the things that I know about missing media is that I've never been actually able to to really see that media. And I only get that rough summaries of things that were. And so there was a book. So it was called The Essential Guide to Werewolves in Literature by Brian Frost. And it was just kind of covering different ways that werewolves and TF has appeared in media. And you learn through that that there's a huge amount of transformation material that appeared in horror anthologies and sci-fi magazines in the 1950s and the 1960s that just, unless they were collected in an anthology, unless they were properly attributed to an, to an author, because sometimes they just posted under a false name, pseudonym, that they're not ever documented. But at the same time, there's such a lack of cultural knowledge of things, of like those huge amount of Spanish language, South American, and Mexican TF movies that have come out that are really, really good that are actually totally available to watch right now straight on YouTube, but just people don't know they exist because they are not really recorded in the history of TF knowledge. Yeah, it's really interesting that you bring that up because... 
I definitely know of media, like there's a lot of non-English media out there that does have TF content in it. And those are always the ones that I feel like we as a community have a bit of a blind spot on. Like I know for a fact that there are at least two or three older like Brazilian werewolf movies that I probably saw as a kid that like impacted me. And I just, I have no idea what they were called. I don't know where they went, but like there's so much content out there particularly in like non-english media that i think if people go and look for them there's some really really great stuff exactly i think you're totally right there's an equal amount of actually truly lost or truly barred from the public transformation media and then there's also a equal amount of content that is just out of the public awareness that just feels lost in the sense that no one remembers it and no one knows to look for it. And it's a shame because, you know, if they are at least preserved in some fashion somewhere, I feel like we as like a community probably would want to know about it. And it's really, it comes down almost to like one part, people remembering some of this stuff and then bringing it up. And one part, like people diligently searching for it and i mean you know there's only so much time in the day and it can be hard to even know where to start sometimes and then sometimes it can be easy as easy as going to a secondhand bookstore and just like browsing and then you might find a gem right that's exactly and i actually speaking of this and speaking of lost media uh, i do want to throw a shout out to a website that i actually do not remember the name and i'm going to very quickly try to find it Oh, is it like Shadow Dragon or Shadow Lord Inc. or something? I do believe you're totally right. It is, uh, it's a basically a documentation site of transformation in media. It might be called Docs Lab, but I also might be confusing that with something else as well. Oh, Docs Lab is like a story repository. Yeah, the one I'm thinking of is shadowlordinc.com, spelled how it kind of sounds. That one, they do categorize a lot of really old TF media. And I think like it updates like almost like every month. And there's just a complete amazing wealth of content that is stored in there that, you know, again, stuff that we may have forgotten about in the interim, but now has been documented quite extensively, I'll say. Honestly, bless them for doing that because there is a lot of stuff that you can just go through that and enjoy some things you totally forgot from your youth. Like, I was a big recently fan of going back and looking at all the Batman Beyond Splicer episodes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's some great stuff there. Yeah, that was another big formative one of like, hmm, it's kind of an example of animators probably knowing what they're doing in terms of making things a little bit horny and finding a connection there with an audience making a new generation. Yeah, I, I always love the fact that, you know, when some of these old things can like resurface and people can rediscover them, it can almost like reignite love in that kind of like, be it like trope or species or what have you, like, especially like when, and I'm sure you've seen this, there's periods of time where like, you know, there'll be one specific thing that comes to dominate what a lot of folks are working on like for example there was the hoop tf trend which is still you know to be clear strongly going and, and i love it um but i always wonder like how many of those are started based off of like one person finding something in an old piece of media because you know as with all art you know there are always iterations off of older ideas and 
older creations. And I feel like in a large part, some of the tropes that then kind of end up coming to dominate the space for a while had their roots in older media that maybe someone saw and then decided to bring back and make popular again. I certainly think that's totally, totally true. I think I certainly want to say that there's new ideas and it's not not everything is super derivative, but there's like a such a wide variety of triggers and TF themes and everything you can possibly think of in terms of tropes for stories or just common points throughout the ages that resonate with people. And it's not a bad thing because it's something that people want to feel, want to see, want to endure. You can always say like a, if there's like a struggle of some, of some sort, that might be something that resonates with people of like, Oh, a struggle with humanity or a struggle with reversing an animal. It all kind of resonates through the ages in a, in a positive way no absolutely and yeah i agree like it's not everything is not always necessarily an iteration on old things there's so many things that you can just kind of mine and i guess develop as part of transformation like because the limits is really just what we can think of right like you can bring out anything and turn it into like a, a trigger or a scenario or what have you so i definitely agree there And also, I think, you know, one of the other things I wanted to touch on in terms of the old sort of media, you know, there are also, and we've touched on this, I guess, a little bit, but there's, you know, there's a sizable number of like TF horror movies from back in the day that also had like a large influence on our current media landscape. So, you know, from like a body horror perspective, you have things like The Fly or The Thing from like a horny perspective like there's a lot of other stuff out there too obviously van helsing comes to mind but you know i guess my question for you is what do you think kind of helped those specific pieces of media to kind of endure the test of time and continue to impact us to this day because there's plenty of old media that didn't necessarily and there's a select few i think that really did kind of burrow their way into our kind of collective consciousness and continue to go back to them i think what a lot of enduring tf media has in common is the relatability of the tfe with the viewer there was a point early on where tf victims or people were victims of curses or even going back even farther uh witches or anything else like that were kind of considered what's the word I want to describe, is just kind of described as outward. That's probably not the best word I want to describe it, but I guess what the what I want to say is that the things that endured are things that are incredibly relatable and also relatable on a queer level exclusively too. I think that the rise of werewolves or even like monsters or tf or even like vampires kind of relies on the rejecting society feeling an outcast and feeling that you are an individual in a in a group and i think that relatability is what brings a lot of older tf stories into recent popularity you get things where like you feel relatability to the main character going through a transformation. You feel relatability to that character's love interest that's watching them go through this change or this pain. And that wasn't something that really existed in media until the 1960s, 1970s. 
And I think that's when people started certainly feeling more relatability to TF. And I think you get some gems every era where you just get the right spark of you can feel yourself in that character's position where the magic of TF or the impossibility of TF kind of crosses over a line into like, I can kind of feel this personally. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. And I think that that relatability that you're describing, I think, is just so key in terms of, you know, relating to the person who's going through the changes or observing or even afflicting it to other people. You know, when it comes to relatability and looking at the people who are going through the changes or observing the stages of changes or inflicting the changes, we as a community really, like, we we derive a lot from being able to put ourselves in those positions. And kind of like you said, I think that these pieces of media that endure often have that relatability that the ones that don't always have. And obviously that's different for different people. You know, one person's relatable TF is another person's, I would never want to go through that. But at the same time, I think that a lot of the ones that have endured just have that broader appeal and at the very least have different positions for people to kind of self-insert to. You mentioned like, in terms of like the queerification of monster TFs, as an example, like people can relate to the idea of being othered and being kind of rejected from society and maybe really actually embracing that and finding that to be an empowering thing instead of like a negative thing that as it's like kind of maybe being portrayed as in the text of the actual story. So I think there's a lot that can be mined there in terms of relatability. Exactly. And if you look back into the history of werewolf TF and animal TF in literature, it's actually from the time of when werewolves as what we assume in our like lexicon of a werewolf, which I say is like a human transforming to a wolf and back, which happened actually in God, I think, I want to say 55 AD in a story called Sycophant. Oh shit. Yes. So it's been all that, all that time. There was always the story of like Lycuan, which was the, I, oh my God, I'm going to embarrass myself on whether it's Greek or Roman or something else where they were tricked into eating human flesh and cursed into being a wolf. That's kind of like the first werewolf story that people always think of and reference. But in terms of like shifting from a human and back, it's the story from 55 AD. Wow, I didn't know that. That's actually fascinating to me because like obviously when I think of a lot of older ancient kind of TS stuff, I think a little bit about, you know, like the Odyssey or like, you know, some of the other like older myths. But I've never really heard like the first true like werewolf TF. So that's really cool. It's pretty interesting. Like I'm certainly not paid to do this, but the essential guide from werewolves in literature by Brian Frost. But the idea of a representation of a werewolf as a main character in literature didn't really show up as a mainstream thing until like the 1950s or 1960s. So like that's almost a new thing of like while civil rights are going on in America, while queer rights are going on in America, while there's so many revolutions, is that that was when the time that the beast of the werewolf became the main character in media. Yeah, and it can be used as an allegory for so many different things, which 
obviously makes it very useful from a storytelling perspective and then you know also for us may engender that kind of relatability that has led us to embracing tf in the way that we do i think that there's always a connectivity even if someone doesn't have a tf fetish quote unquote that i think there's always something that's incredibly relatable to tf that makes the genre popular and continuous and enduring and building off of that in terms of thinking about the relatability in particular you know when it comes to a lot of older tf media one of the kind of genres or types of stories that a lot of us remember uh, from our youth is the choose your own adventure approach i've generally found in conversations with other folks that cyoa adventures were like really formative parts of many tf fans experiences and you know it may be through things like goosebumps or you know interactive fiction online at like cyoc.net itself or like other written stories we kind of always would like gravitate to the quote-unquote bad endings when someone would get tf it would be like oh no the bad ending that i'm deliberately looking for because that's what i want (laughs) um (laughs) my question i guess then building on our conversation about older media and, and you know thinking about cyoa like what do you think it was about the cyoa format that helped it become such a staple of the genre like it was it really that kind of self-inserting to some degree of reading a story in like the second person for example or was there something else there at play that maybe i'm not necessarily thinking of oh i think cyoc was well first off i want to say cyc.net big shout out probably one of the first things I've interacted to or interacted with when I kind of got into the expanded furry media when I typed in werewolf and I got CYOC and I was like, oh, hello. This is this is a whole nother world. I could be a plant, a robot, 20,000 different animals, petrified, we're all good. Yeah, it's perfect. Oh, God. That site has such a special place in my heart. And it, I mean, to be clear, it's still active to this day. I don't like trawl it for content as much anymore simply because i don't have the time but like oh my gosh it was such a formative part of my experience too i am in the in the same boat and same experience as you where i know it exists i check it maybe like once every three months and i'm just like i kind of pet it like an old tamagotchi (laughs) like oh i'm so glad you're still alive even though i haven't fed you the tamagotchis can endure for quite a while which I is very good thankfully because i am very neglectful I think Choose Your Own Change was a, or even like Goosebumps. Well, first of all, I think Goosebumps was one of the first instances of introducing transformation to children, which I think when did, uh, the Werewolf Fever Swamp came out in, God, 1993, and then was followed up by, I believe, four other Werewolf Goosebumps books. And I think that was a introduction of being able to, for youth, and honestly, this was my generation, I'm a mid-late 90s kid, was that I could be curious and see, oh, what if I did fuck up? And what if I did just stick my hand in the mouth of the sleeping werewolf and see what happens? Or, Or what would happen if I drank the monster juice or ate the oh there is one goosebumps books that i will unashamedly admit that makes me horny is 
oh, which one is this? I feel like there's so many options, potentially. You know what? Let's play a game. Name two titles. They're not werewolf books. What titles do you think they are that really messed with my brain when I was a kid in Goosebumps? Okay. Hmm. I'll give you a hint. The title looks like there are raptors on it. Oh my gosh, this is... <sighs> and the plot involved a bakery and cookies. Well, not a bakery, cookies. They just bake cookies. Dear, oh dear. My brain is like melting. Why can I not think? Because the, the one I was going to kind of try and guess is there's the story where the kid ends up turning into a dog at the end of it. But I think that one wasn't actually a CYO. That wasn't a CYOA, but that was a good one. Yeah. The, the story wasn't a CYOA. I should mention that. Okay. Oh, it wasn't a CYOA. Okay, okay. Um, involved a bakery. Well, they baked cookies, I should say. And there was a bake sale. Oh. Not a, a bakery. Okay. Wow. I am ashamed of myself. I don't think I'm going to remember the title. Oh my gosh. I mean, I would not be anywhere close to guessing any Goosebumps novel books titles, but uh, the title was Calling All Freaks, I believe. And oh. the plot was a kid made like a prank call. Hey, freaks, we're having a bake sale or something like that. And then it turns out a group of people came over and they were raptor people called the freaks and they were like oh you're our leader help us make a batch for a bake sale that will transform all the people who eat them into freaks like us aka raptor people oh my gosh and then he was just at the end of the book he was just like well you know what i guess i can be a freak because he was not super popular in school and then he eats the cookies, and the end of the book is him starting to transform. Oh, that's amazing. I just looked up the, the title, and I'm seeing the cover, and I definitely read this book, even if I didn't remember it immediately. That's so cool. <sighs> oh, Goosebumps. But I think Goosebumps, going way back to what we were talking about earlier, I think Goosebumps was like a nice introduction for people into experimenting freely with like what could be possibly the worst thing I could do. And then mixed with the fact that it's like, oh, well, these usually cover things that could potentially be like kinks or fetishes. And then it's like, oh, now I've I've learned. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, actually, I was just thinking, because I was trying to look up titles, there was one that I do remember sticking with me that was called Trapped in Batwing Hall. And there was an ending where the reader, or like the character could get tf'd into like stone and that one stuck with me a lot i went back to that book many a times and i'm glad i was like trying to look up titles here because i forgot about that one and i was just reading the description i was like oh yeah that one oh that's what it was called i mean i have certain suspicions that rl stein knows exactly what he's doing oh yeah 100 (laughs) percent it's just sometimes they're just mm, mm, mm. you just have to make a noise because you can't make any any other response it's just like yep mm, mm, yep honestly i will be forever thankful for that man for what he gifted to us as a community so exactly but yeah i guess you know i guess one of the other things i've kind of noticed then is you know like thinking about more 
current times you know like choose your own adventure as a medium itself has kind of waned when it comes to popular media like it was very ever present in the 90s be it through goosebumps or a variety of other things um and then you know that bled a little into the early aughts but i think by the time you hit the the 2010s and like now the 2020s that's not really something that seems to crop up anymore in children's literature and media I mean, obviously, I, I think that's that's a shame. But, you know, why do you think it is that, like, the normies kind of, well, I'm going to put normies in quotations here, like, the normies kind of moved on from using that as a way to tell stories, while we, as Transformation fans, have lingered so much. I mean, like, there's stories posted to CYOC every day. People are still contributing to tangents from stories that were started years ago like we're still very much in that medium but it seems like a lot of the rest of the world has moved on so do you have any theories about that i really honestly think it has to do with the advent and this this sounds kind of like wildly out of place but i think it honestly has to do with the advent of video games really yes i think that in books and movies there has been a lack of a need to have your perspective be that of a first person when you can have video games and you can completely have your own experience. And I think that the problem is, while there has been a huge influx in choose your own adventure in general, like when you think of video games, it just seems like a context of there's no real transformation stuff that is in video games i guess so like basically what you're saying is that because us as like consumers of media when it comes to video games we have the agency to do almost anything we want within the confines of that story that itself has kind of subsumed any need to have like a cyoa format when it comes to like books or you know other sorts of media because the quote-unquote CYOA approach has already been subsumed by video games. Yeah, that's basically kind of it. Like, if you want a movie that has a ambiguous ending, like, you don't really do that anymore because people want concrete answers. If you want books that have definite endings... Like, people really want to know the ending, the true ending. And that's kind of why, like, fandom wikis show up and, like, analysis of the endings and, like, what does this mean? What is the symbolism? And there's a fandom and a forum and a discussion medium for everything nowadays. So that kind of really discourages ambiguity or multiple choices or lack of a canon narrative. And then where video games, where you can do different pathways and different choices and stuff like that, that has kind of taken the place of CYOC, but it's just the fact that there hasn't been any developers or narratives that have really focused on a furry or transformation-focused narrative. No, that's a really good point, you know. And I guess this is also particularly when it comes to, like, RPGs, you know, a large portion of them do focus on your choices and that has definitely become more apparent as time has gone on like particularly when i think of like the advent of like bioware games for example when they started to really push it and a lot of the older jrpgs that also focused on decisions be it like the tales of series or final fantasy or what have you you know having that kind of take over 
the space in our cultural conscience of making your own decisions and influencing the story. I, I hadn't ever really thought of it that way, but you're right. It does kind of fill that niche. And then the lack of transformation in those stories is kind of incidental for most people, but for us, it's a bit of a loss, particularly with fandom. You're also absolutely correct. You know, we don't tend to have many ambiguous endings or ambiguous things that happen because those things get picked apart on you know fandom wikis or twitter or what have you and i guess it does leave a lot less room to kind of speculate and spin off things i mean obviously when it comes to ongoing media there will always be fan fiction that i guess to some degree can fill one kind of type of cyoa in the sense of like oh, you know, I'm taking these concepts and these characters, and what if they did this instead? But it's very much like a linear, like there was one thing, and then there's this extension, and that's it. There's not any further iteration, like in a traditional CYOA approach. Yeah, it's just a shame that there's been less of that, I guess, from like a TF perspective. And it's almost funny, because it feels like, particularly for like younger folks who didn't like live through uh, the whole like 90s fad of goosebumps like it seems like a bit of like a tf fever dream in retrospect because it was like there was all this content where you could pick all these different endings and then it just kind of like petered out which is you know it, it makes sense why it did i think within the context of that explanation of video games but it is a bit of a shame i completely agree and i when you mentioned that kind of like feeling of the experience of goosebumps I don't even think it's even possible to replicate the kind of rose-tinted glasses feelings of, like, the mid to late 90s of having, I don't know, maybe 50 Goosebumps books. Of those, maybe, like, 15 choose-your-own-adventures of just really just making your own narrative and making your own headspace of things. Wild, wild. Change of times. It, It really is. Do you think there's ever a way we could bring it back like as like a collective or has its time just truly sailed? I think hmm, that's a hard question to answer. We like to ask the hard-hitting questions. The hard-hitting questions here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I really don't know how to... Actually, no. I think I found out the answer. I think if in the context of the metaverse, and God help me... God help me. I'm going to I'm going to bring in the horrible topics here. No, I mean we've talked about VR on this podcast before and I welcome discussions about VR. So please continue. I think if there is a way for someone to have a VR experience in which they could go on a adventure for lack of a better word. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And just kind of have their own, like, I'm going to party with friends, I'm going to, like, log into and play games, yada, yada, yada. But just in their free time, like, I'm going to follow, like, a breadcrumb trail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like, go on a, a TF adventure. I think that might be something that could be marketable, like a, a plug-in to VR chat, for lack of a better term. So, yeah, no, I think I think that's a really great point. And, you know, like, I mean, obviously, there are video games made specifically for like VR headsets that can draw on that a little bit. But particularly when it comes to like the more organic, furry driven fandom content in VR, I feel like you totally could have a situation where the community kind of comes up with some sort of breadcrumb trail, like you said, in terms of traveling through like spaces and maybe 
interacting with NPCs or like other people as part of the story and then like have transformation be implemented as part of that, I feel like you could absolutely transfer that over. And I I'm surprised I didn't even think of this when I pitched this question. That's actually a great answer. Well, well, thank you. <laughs> and I think even as VR develops in the future, as an antidote, I, uh, I bought an Oculus in January Ooh. and I literally have not used it. Sense. Oh my gosh! But I bought it with the sense of like I really want to play VR, but I also know that I think that within three years that there will be very immersive VR tech that can replicate transformation and that incredibly immersive experience. That I was like, I think that this is going to be the way to go for choose your own adventures for really playing a game where you are being immersed in things, where you are playing a game where you are really in control of yourself. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, the speed in which there has been development of TF content, even just like organically within the community, the speed of which it has gone has like kind of blown my mind in a way. And like the ability to already simulate feelings through full body trackers has come so far in such a short amount of time that I I agree with you. I think that it's a matter of time before we get to the kind of point where the simulation of things happening really starts to bump up against that realism level where it's like you almost can't decipher what's like really happening in the game versus what maybe your mind is also filling in the blanks. And I think that's really cool. I want to be in that future now. I want to skip the waiting time. <laughs> and frankly, I need to get my own VR set that's like on my like list of things. But that's a that's a side tangent. Yeah, I agree. I think it's the potential of VR is so varied and exciting. And I just want to make sure that it continues to be a space where we as a community can continue to innovate because we definitely don't want it to go the way of the internet in the sense of like becoming very like centralized and taken over by specific companies unfortunately so i I hope it continues to maintain its indie streak and like you know i'm very much welcome people entering that space like companies or otherwise to create tf media but other than that like keep it weird y'all you know like that's where where we really want it to be extremely like uh anything that is furry and anything that is queer and anything is tf I feel like it should be wholly, wholly unacceptable to the general public because that's what makes it cool. Yeah, absolutely. I want my horny werewolf content and you cannot take it away from me, general public. I don't care. And just to kind of wrap around to a couple things too, it's nice to know that in development of, of things like VR, it is now being made by people in the furry community people who know and understand what we want and what we uh, what we really crave and the new things that are coming out are in a way designed for us to have new methods of communication interaction and that's super duper good because we furries are the driving force behind so many technological innovations oh yeah and you know like all the furries who have entered other like traditional like media production forms and then like implemented in to the content that's produced their own like 
furry perspectives also gives me hope because it means that you know even if like you know there are some companies down the line who want to like get into this space somehow in whatever way it is there will be furries at some of those companies who want to make the good furry content and i i think that's that's a good thing you know it's like kind of that joke whenever furries are leaving like a furry convention that's like the most tenuous time for the internet because half the like backbone of the internet infrastructure is going home at that time you know so exactly (laughs) and also like half like the airplane industry too which i learned yeah it's like yeah i didn't even know that until recently and that's like so like i guess it makes sense but also like it's so surprising to me that 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 industry in particular also has like such a high concentration of furries yeah, that was not one I expected either. I am right in the boat with you. I was like, damn. Shout out to all the airline furries. I We appreciate you. Y'all, y'all keep our shit together. Also, specific shout out. I do not remember the name of the furry, but in case that they do listen, uh, I did watch a video of a furry pilot that sent a, a woo code to uh, the tower, and they took a video of it, and... Whoever they are, if you know who they are, I enjoyed the video and I want to thank you. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And of course, under the ICAO codes, there is an airport in Russia that's code is UWU and got to give them a shout out as well because I respect that. So, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about a lot of really cool old media and like CYOAs and such that I know you have a lot of knowledge on. I'd like to also turn a little bit to your own kind of process as an artist, because obviously I, you know, longtime admirer of your work. I think it's fantastic. And I'm really curious to know a little bit more about how you kind of built yourself up as an artist within the transformation space. And so I guess to kind of start off, you know, specifically with regards to your art style, I'm curious to know like what the process was in terms of testing the waters and figuring out what kind of style worked best for the content that you wanted to produce and put out there. Well, first off, thank you for those incredibly kind words. My art style is a very kind of weird, interesting story. I want to say that there's, I do have a couple main inspirations uh in terms of artists yoshiyuki uh sadamoto from it's who's a founding gynex member if you know evangelion yes dot hack summer wars very good shit yuji ishihara from uh at capcom who did battle network stuff and did all the character designs uh araki everyone knows from jojo and then one of the more recent people certainly is dima Goryanov, uh, who is the lead Destiny Universe concept artist. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know about them actually. That's cool. So my style, I really had a in developing my style. I want to say I really had a big struggle in putting things together. I'm an artist who's very reactionary to media that I consume. So in terms of being an artist, I'm actually very competitive and reactive. So if I see a piece of art, I immediately think of, ooh, how can I incorporate that? How can I improve on that? That was kind of my my big thing for my initial phase of being a furry artist. But then in 2017, maybe 2018, 2019, I'm missing the dates. But I ended up absolutely mashing my arm. In the in the world's most boring injury, I was in Wisconsin. I was chilling 
under a waterfall and I got up and was walking back for the like the half hour walk to the car and I tripped and I pinched and inflamed my drawing arm and all my nerves. So part of my style as much as I want to be like, oh, there's artistic thoughts and design thoughts, concept thoughts, and being really mindful of things, I actually threw my arm out really, really hard, and I had to think of a style that I could actually draw without making too many marks, because after three minutes of drawing, my arm would go numb. Oh my gosh. So that was kind of how I developed my current style. And it's, though my arm is now better. Yeah, I was going to say, is it, is it better now? <laughs> it's it's better now. It's been a while. Okay, that's good. I have only other damage my other side of my body by having bad posture. So my style was basically based off of a whole bunch of influences and, and personal notions, but then also crafted by, oops, I really, really fucked up my arm. And I can only do, like, short arm movements of a stroke. So I can't, like, do a painting. That is a very interesting and unique backstory for an art style. I mean, it's definitely produced an art style that I think is really cool and and unique. Um, I wish it hadn't involved that much pain. But, um, (laughs) I mean, I guess, you know, everything uh, shakes out somehow sometimes. I don't think I'd want it any other way, to be honest. I met so many cool people. Me seeking treatment for my arm being messed up and pushing everything to limits and really exploring things. It's like, okay, as much as there was pain, as much as it was obnoxious, it worked out. So then I guess, you know, as you kind of were developing that art style and, you know, really pushing yourself to your limits to find something that worked in concert with the the issues with your arm that you were grappling with you know i imagine you were also thinking and i i'll confess i do this myself too like you know thinking about like how do i make myself stand out as like a transformation artist or an artist in general to be completely honest and like finding that you know unique niche that you like to inhabit and really trumpet out the work that you really want to make so what would you say differentiate your stuff from your fellow transformation peers like what makes your stuff yours well i think before i answer that i think i need to answer a a big elephant in the room which is okay me being confused with sky i I will say just for the record i definitely do see similarities i have never actually confused your works with one another so i do think they're distinct but anyways continue it is very common that I am confused with Sky. I'll even tell a fun story where Sky went to a local party and uh, afterwards I get a message from someone who was at that party saying that they were so glad that they met me and had a good time talking to me. And I was like, mm, I'm really sorry, but that's not me. Oh, no. And that's been a, a non-uncommon thing. So I want to say, though, to, to answer that, is that a lot of my influences are based on the same things that Sky does. Mm-hmm. And we weirdly have cross paths as found family. 
so we enjoy the same media dot hack and evangelion and summer wars and battle network and like we enjoy the same things we went to the same art school i ended up living in their dorm the year after they moved out oh my gosh just so many like coincidences of us crossing paths and being into the same thing at the same time and being inspired by the same things it was just weirdly odd that we both like the same things but it's kind of fun that's like oh hey they're my found family they're my brother they're drawing the same things that basically i draw and it's kind of fun and they're local we interact and have fun and like we go on vacations together and and yada 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 that's awesome. And I think, you know, it's always really nice to have um, someone that you can talk to and really relate to on that level of having similar interests and also like being able to have those really like interesting, nuanced conversations about the things you enjoy, art and everything else in between. So that's really awesome. Yeah, I agree. But besides us being effectively like consequential twins, is that um, I think that I have a unique oh i don't want to say unique because that makes me sound like an ass and i think unique is a very valid and correct term to use here in terms of your stuff but sorry i'm interrupting no you're all good i think i have a factor in which my art draws in folks that are not furries and not necessarily into tf but just necessarily individuals on twitter that are really enamored by this and introduced to this topic so i think i look at a lot of my twitter followers and i think it's only like maybe half furries and the other half are just people who are queer or who are interested in tf they're just following me because they are not interested in the fandom but they're just interested in the fetish that is so that's so fascinating that you bring that up I have had a bit of a similar experience on Twitter myself, and I didn't know if anyone else had that experience. I mean, I guess it it makes sense that other people would, but for me in particular, I always found it was interesting because since I work on photo manipulation stuff, there's like a weird element of like the actual photos of people being intermashed with TF and furry. And so when I would get these non-furry followers, I always thought, oh, well, maybe they are interested in it because there's an element of like for lack of a better term like new dudes turning into something and that's the attraction so it's really cool that you've kind of had a similar experience with your stuff because i always think it's really interesting when people who craft transformation media or just like furry media in general are able to pull in these viewers and really like kind of like hold their attention in a way that on the face of it you wouldn't think would happen but it does because people have such a wide variety of interests even people outside of the furry community and they can connect with individual artists even if they're not you know interested in being in the furry community in general so it's really cool that you mentioned that i'm very glad to hear that that is very validating actually so um that's that's fantastic what are some of the biggest interactions or most memorable interactions you've had with with people that are not part of the TF community or the furry community that have interacted with your art? So I would say some of the most interesting ones have been when I'll get a message from like an account or something and it'll be like, 
you know, someone who has like, I don't know, someone I've never heard of has like over a thousand followers or whatever, has no common followers with me. Like they don't follow anyone else in anything related to anything that I do, but they do follow me and then ask for like a commission. That to me is like almost the highest praise in some ways, because it's like, and obviously usually these remain private, so they don't get posted anywhere. But like the fact that someone who has like no other exposure, at least from what I can see in terms of their online consumption to transformation or furry or what have you. And they come to me and they're like, Hey, I really love your stuff. Can I literally pay you to make something for me in this niche? Like that I always find to be the most interesting shit because it means in some way that whatever it is that I'm producing has awoken something inside of them. And I think awakening like interest in other people is like the highest form of flattery when someone tells that to you. So, you know, that always stands out to me as one of the most memorable kind of like interactions with people who aren't in the furry or transformation fandom, because again, it really just shows that art after a certain like, you know, audience, it can, it can go out into the world and it can interact with people that you would never think would interact with it and would never have interacted with otherwise. And it can make an impact on them to such a degree that they're drawn in and they actually are like, I actually want this to be me. I want to see myself in this situation because the way you have done it has spoken to me on a level that maybe other people doing it did not. Bingo. I think you're absolutely, absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's it's just so cool. And, you know, I think, you know, in terms of like uniqueness coming back, I think to some of your stuff, you know, there's a lot of like interesting scenarios and tropes that I've noticed you kind of tend to focus on or like to explore. So like just to kind of like list a few, you do a lot of great stuff with like frats and team sports. There's definitely a lot of elements of D&D fantasy that crop up, be it through like, you know, there was the series you did on like cursed like D&D items that would then inflict like a transformation on people. There's a lot of like interesting stuff around video games and like for lack of a better term, a lot of great big dick energy stuff. So, you know, I was kind of curious, obviously you've spent a little bit of time talking about your art influences and stuff and some of that does feed into this, but some of the other ones don't. And so I was curious to know what drew you towards those tropes or situations and showcasing them in the transformation pieces that you create. I think a lot of the tropes I do with the kind of like the frats and the joining up, I would say, is the term. I want to say I have a joining up fetish. So this is a weird story from my childhood, and it's, it's one of the few things I remember, is that it was a whole group of us and a whole bunch of people, and we were playing tag. And the tag was like, oh, if you got tagged, you join the, the taggers. And I just remember like locking myself in like a deck storage bin, like in hiding. And I just remember just like, oh, the stress of maintaining self versus joining a pack or conglomerate. Yeah. And that was something that like really, really stuck with me. And... In fact, that thought was so, so intense that I completely forgot the question. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's chill. I think you kind of answered it in some ways, you know, like in terms of understanding why you focus on things like frats and team sports and D&D fantasy and big dick energy. There we go. Okay, now I remember. It's just the thought of just 
like a frat or like joining or like a big dick energy is just an invitation. Like that's the the idea is that you are presented as the viewer, as the the fuck buddy. Oh yeah. Is that like you are given a choice of like do you want to oh my god what is the movie i'm gonna i'm gonna completely forget but uh <laughs> where the the sheep ass or do you want to live deliciously of like oh yes <laughs> of just like do you want to take the plunge and i think the tension of that is something that like really resonates with me on like a both the, like a sexual and both like a stimulating level yeah, it's it's a very like erotically charged tension in those kind of situations that, you know, obviously in media it doesn't always necessarily go that direction, but in your stuff you can actually fully explore it the way that you want to, right? And so I'm like every piece is like someone giving in or someone accepting an invite or someone being humiliated for accepting things or just kind of that theme. Yeah, no, I really dig that, you know, especially like when it comes to things like, you know, your exploration of TF with regards to like video games or like D&D fantasy. I've also noticed that oftentimes either there can be an element of like giving into something or conversely encountering kind of like a cursed object or like a, a curse of some kind. And then, you know, the character will maybe sometimes react with shock, but there will be like almost a moment of like finally coming to accepting the changes in in those pieces where it's like more than one frame which you know obviously i'm, I'm a big fan of like yes please give in to the tf <laughs> <laughs> yeah the dnd tfs are i will admit they're they're very pretty staged and there's a lot of uh very explicit like this needs to go here 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 the pose needs to be this 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 and this even more so than like a regular commission but I think, yeah, that there's the people who want to buy or commission the D&D TFs also are like, we want to explore the giving in fantasy. Oh, yeah, 100%. And there's so much that can be mined there. So it's always exciting when that stuff crops up. I guess then also as kind of like a, on the flip side, are there any like tropes that you really dislike seeing when it comes to like tf art or writing or such like are there any that you immediately kind of disengage from and wouldn't even want to explore within the context of your art i'm pretty flexible with what i will draw with tf to be honest and what can be in in transformation but the really thing that i want to say bothers me is just necessarily like people who are writing descriptions or writing stories just using not the best terminology for gender or for identity or for bodies of queer folks. That kind of tends to be like, eh, I'll be like, oh, I would really like to look for a gender transformation story. And I would like to read that and enjoy that and TMI, get off to that. But then if the language is so very uh, archaic, I'm just like, I need to back out of that yeah it's funny you mentioned that because I, I i've definitely had similar experiences in terms of looking for that content and then kind of being turned off because of some of the terminology that's used and i always think that like 
I genuinely, I'm sure there are people who create that and, and, you know, think that it is accessible to a wider audience. And I'm sure there are people who do enjoy that stuff. But you can always kind of tell when something is particularly in that space. And I'll get off my soapbox in a minute. But, you know, I can always tell to some degree in those kind of situations, like someone who's writing it from like a place of like, I want to explore this and really like enjoy it. And then the people who maybe view it as more of like a degrading thing. And again, to be clear, like, you know, if you want to explore things from being degraded, like that is a theme that comes up all the time in TF and that's chill. Like, you know, I'm not here to yuck your yum, but definitely when it comes to those topics where it's a bit more sensitive, like I can always tell where there's actually care being put into those things and when it's not. And I think that uh, I'm definitely of the same mind when it comes to that one in particular with you. I think you're right on the money. It's just like you can present the topic in possibly the worst way shape or form just by using the the wrong terms and and the wrong language honestly going back to something a little bit more lighthearted is bad endings for tf tropes i usually don't like something that's too super bad like i would certainly like something that's like oh if someone is tf'd into a cow and they're permanently a cow like that's not too bad but if like if someone is like, I am going to TF someone into a cow, and then like it's 30 paragraphs of like, oh god, I'm stuck as a cow without like any sort of positive stimuli. I'm like, mm, that's not my thing. Like I'm not a, I'm not a Kafka like get the roach out kind of person. Yeah, and you know it's funny you mention that because you know a lot of the to go back to like the Goosebumps media and such, like they do portray a lot of the bad endings as quote unquote bad endings. So it's interesting that that's still something that's not really a big thing for you. Well, like, thinking back on, like, Goosebumps, I've only read, I think, of the five Goosebumps stories that are, like, werewolfy. Uh, and I know there's more, like, TFE ones. Like, The Werewolf of Fever Swamp, which is the first one. That's from 1993. And that had, a, like, a positive ending. Uh, he was like, I'm a werewolf now. And then, like, the the one you mentioned earlier where the protagonist kept growing hair. I think he had, like, a fun time with the new dog pack. They were never, like quote-unquote bad endings they were never like this person transformed into a dog and they were in pain forever it's just like oh you're a consequence that you now accept it and it's even kind of horny of like oh well you're now like dumb as an animal if you are fully transformed that's you just accept that oh yeah i think that you know when it comes to like playing on assuming the intelligence of an animal so to speak in some ways it can like negate some of the bad ending to some degree because it's like well they're they're just vibing as an animal now like they're free from capitalism honestly love that for them exactly that was probably the big benefit of that my hairy whatever thing the goosebumps story yeah it was definitely a, a benefit in my opinion exactly agree agree yeah and you know i guess then looking at kind of how you've managed yourself as a tf artist in general like you know Obviously, as a not-safe-for-work artist, there's a lot of pitfalls that kind of have to be navigated when it comes to, like, figuring out how to, like, kind of present yourself and handling the social media aspect. So I was curious if you had any insights you wanted to share in terms of how you handle social media and is there, like, a professional approach to take in terms of managing your, like, quote-unquote brand TM? Well, I want to say that when I grew up, my dad was a personal business owner 
and he had his office in in house so i was very involved from like a young age in just marketing in general i think just as a professional i think you just need to show yourself as available show yourself as open to conversation and kind of almost act like you are in retail which which is a sad state to be yeah it is and i think that i owe one part of my status right now as having that background of growing up in a business household but also having a job a few years ago as a floor leader and product trainer for lush cosmetics so i was like i need to know exactly how to sell things to people for a lot amount of money that they really didn't need to spend to be honest no that's relatable because as a furry artist you are a a luxury product because you you are getting the picture with the prestige of the artist you're getting things with the prestige of the uniqueness like it's not something that anyone else can have so you learn how to sell and and advertise that so i think in learning how to be a professional artist is just very 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 almost impersonal salesman like techniques just being like hey i made this picture let me look at data let me look at trends let me look at the entire trends of my timeline and post when you need and it's kind of like its own like marketing analysis there's a lot that you can mine from like the engagement statistics on things yes you're you're absolutely right but then there's another part which is actually a part that i feel like i have personally failed in is networking and that there's so many ways that you can be a furry artist a tf artist an artist in general just by making friends and making connections i'm really really bad at that i am a very very quiet person in terms of social media but there are people who produce less art than me are younger than me uh, have entered the fandom later than me i should say and that they're doing super financially well just because they are communicative and network and talk amongst each other so i think if you want to be a in summary if you want to be a good popular artist i think it just means you need to be consistent you need to make sure that people can access your art and people can view you and you're consistent but if you want kind of the the furry community i think you need to just be really open and communicative and just respond to people and talk back and forth no absolutely i think the networking part is always a tricky kind of area to navigate particularly when you're trying to like establish yourself as an artist because like on the one hand you want to be connected to other people you want to make friends it can also come across as, and I think this is what a lot of people struggle with, like it can come across as weirdly like self-praising or like self-promoting. And a lot of people don't like that feeling. And unfortunately, that's kind of just the nature of trying to, you know, get your art out there and to get to know new people. 
And it's not an easy feeling for a number of people to kind of grapple with and navigate because, again, promoting yourself and, like, singing your praises from, like, the top of the mountain can be a bit off-putting when that's not a way that someone is necessarily used to. But that is kind of what you have to do when you're on social media in terms of getting your stuff out there. And, you know, I think when it comes to networking in particular, it's just daunting sometimes to reach out to people you've never spoken with before. And like, you can be like, oh, yeah, I know one or two things I want to say, like, you know, hi, I love your stuff. We'd love to chat more. And then it's like, people don't really have a strategy after that, which is fair, because it's like, it's difficult to like, kind of sometimes have those conversations. But from a networking perspective, at least, I think that the more opportunities you take to put yourself out there the better and i mean hey if, if you think about it in in a weird way um coming on a podcast is a great networking uh, uh experience because then everyone's getting your voice into their ear holes so that's a lot of talking uh, multiplied by uh however many people listen right exactly that you hear that tf folks you need to join in on this podcast because you get the the voice out yeah exactly exactly this is uh my uh, self-promotion segment. But no, seriously, I, I do think that, you know, it's it's a difficult area to navigate. And so I think that even if the networking hasn't been something that's necessarily been as successful, I mean, it's very clear you've been able to build up your brand and your kind of follower base in a way that is very connected to your art. And like you said, some really connect to it even outside of being like a TF fan or a furry fan, they just really connect with that stuff. So I think that does speak volumes to um, the success in terms of brand, uh, managing your own brand. Well, thank you. Yeah. If you are a not safer work or even just safer work freelance artist working on Twitter that works in the queer community, I think you just need to be able to take risks in weird ways that don't make sense and you can't really justify but they do end up paying off and hard to describe but no i think i think you've put a a pretty decent spin on explaining it so then i guess you know when i think about also the other kind of side of being a tf artist like one of the challenges sometimes for folks is taking on commissions and how do you kind of navigate that because you know when when you work with clients oftentimes you'll be given like a very vague description of what someone is looking for and you know there might be a reference or two but you kind of have to divine a little bit from what they've said what it is that they're looking for so how do you kind of take a sometimes scant description and turn it into you know incredible final art products like is there a set process you follow what's kind of the thought process behind taking that description and turning it into a piece of art the short answer is i cheat (laughs) <laughs> and the answer or to explain on that is uh, when I take a commission, I make sure that the client provides a large amount of references or a link to their fur affinity or so furry or Twitter or whatever. And then I end up snooping a bit and I end up looking through things that they tend up liking. So Let's say I get a commission that is a transformation into a Lucario. And I go... Very hot. Yes, I agree. There's a reason I chose Lucario. There's a reason. Anyway, (laughs) 
So I'll look at their profile and even beyond the, the references they send me, I'll look at their favorites, I'll look at their past commissions, I'll look at their likes and see things that they uh, enjoy. So sometimes they're like, let's say that Lucario, but they also like uh, hypnosis. So I'll look around and see that like, okay, well maybe I'll include a subtle element of hypnosis in this picture. And that's kind of how I kind of change, adjust, fix a loose commission description is just kind of doing a little bit of detective work and kind of finding what makes each commissioner tick. And so sometimes when I finish a piece i'll send it back to the commissioner and i'll get a response of just oh this is exactly what i want it plays against exactly what i have a fetish for or I'm extremely horny for perfect and like i did my job no that's a great that's a solid way to approach it and you know doing that kind of detective work it doesn't sound like it takes like a super long time but it can really help elevate that piece at the end to really connect with them especially like you like i kind of i guess initially pitched if the description is kind of vague so it's interesting that you investigate um, not only like the stuff they post but also their likes so basically if someone's commissioning you their likes better be up to uh, date is what you're saying yeah pretty much (laughs) (laughs) not gonna lie that's a big a big uh, influence i think that's that's really cool though that you take that process and approach when it comes as well i guess to like something i've noticed in your pieces is your posing is quite dynamic like you don't necessarily reuse the same poses in different things i mean most people don't but like i guess what i mean is i have always found that there are very unique poses that you will use in some of your transformation pieces so when it comes to determining a pose i mean obviously sometimes there will be references from the user in terms of actually providing a reference to the pose they're thinking of but when that isn't there how do you usually conceptualize picking a pose for the piece like obviously some of that will be determined by the species or you know the vague description that's been provided but is there also a process that you follow there in terms of figuring out a pose uh there's actually a couple things i do with posing admittedly i am actually super super bad at posing really Really? I'm going to press X to doubt here, but okay, continue. So, and I'll explain why. Okay. I have a couple of friends who have talked about their inability to conceptualize visual objects in their brain, and I am blanking on the term for that. I think it's aphantasia. Potentially. I'm not going to check it up, so I'm going to trust you. Yeah, it's aphantasia. But I don't exactly have that, but I'm really, really bad at figuring out poses that would be horny for things that are adult. So what I end up doing is running things through a program called Design Doll. So Design Doll is a program by Atterwell, and this is a posing program that you can load in human dolls or objects and kind of pose them around and see what fits. So you can be like, if a commissioner is like, I would like a pose of me bent over, I can kind of move a general doll of someone bent over, switch the camera angle, switch the posing, and kind of kind of make things very easy to conceptualize and adjust. So I don't have to do repeated thumbnails or repeated... Uh, 
posing dolls, I can just move things around and, and adjust. So I think that's been a very big thing in terms of me figuring out what exactly is the most perfect pose for a TF is just being able to have a easy to move model that I can just adjust and see where things work, see where things don't, see which camera angles that pose works and see where camera angles that things don't. And that's been extremely helpful in streamlining my process. That's fantastic. I didn't, first of all, I didn't even know that was a, a program you could have, but that makes sense in retrospect. But also, you know, I imagine that really does help to have that kind of visual input that then you can map out onto your picture. I, I know that, you know, a lot of people don't always think about this when they're starting out, but like having those references and using those references to help with those kinds of things is really impactful. And it, it's not a cheating like method. Like I firmly do not believe that's cheating. That's basically helping to streamline your process and help to formulate and distill what you want to do from your mind to the page. So, you know, using that as a way to kind of assist with that, I think is is an innovative way to get around any potential blocks that you might have in your mind with regards to posing. Exactly. And I will just take a side note here to all the TF Tuesday podcast listeners that, yes, using references are totally legit. Everyone uses them. I'm going to scream from the I'm scream from the top of my lungs. Everyone accept them. I use them. Everyone uses them. Get over it. <laughs> yeah. No, completely. I completely agree. They're incredibly invaluable and I hope that, you know, people who are trying to like break into the space and trying to like figure it out like to just please use references. It will help you in the long run. <laughs> Exactly. So then I guess that's kind of like a, a final question on your kind of art process and like building yourself as an artist. You know, I know that you have a lot of experience both within like TF spaces and also within professional art spaces. What sort of advice would you give to someone who's trying to break into one or both of those areas? Is there like a set formula or like a, a set of steps that someone can do to help with that? Or is it kind of a series of lucky breaks? Honestly, the answer is a combination of both. It's the the art world is very unlike a kind of traditional industry world for those who are more familiar with like a, a bachelor of science or in a company or an industry where your talent is more judged than your credentials. I would say in a professional world, just be consistent with your work. Be loud with your work. Be proud with your work, honestly. Like, there's an incredible amount of difference between posting a picture and being like, oh, I'm tried, I'm so sorry that this isn't what I wanted, versus posting that same picture and being like, this is a picture. Here I go. And just being kind of open to a weird adventure because the professional art world is not a straight line but is a weird noodle of a <laughs> of a career choice where you're going to be bouncing between different companies and organizations and freelance and blah 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 it's a crazy experience and then for being a furry artist i would say make friends that sounds like a weird thing to say but make friends because 
I think those friends are going to be the people that no matter your talent, your art style, your output, your history, your demeanor, communications, blah, 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 those are going to be the people that are going to be your friends. And those people are going to be, weirdly, the friends that you're going to have for longer than you think. Like, I'm friends with furries that I met when I was 18, 19, and I'm 30 now, and I'm like, these are some of my best friends. No, I completely agree. I think that's a a really valuable piece of advice. And, you know, um, having, like, kind of people that you can go back to who, you know, you can count on and rely on particularly like even just from an art perspective to like give you feedback I think is really important and helpful I know that I definitely have people that I will go to and I'll be like oh I don't know how this looks and then like get feedback and be like oh thank you I will I will fix this so I definitely think from an art perspective it's super helpful and then also like you said from a friendship perspective it's also really helpful because again you can make some of the best friends online and you know, sometimes they'll be local, sometimes they won't, but that doesn't diminish the fact that the friendship can be really helpful and um, really impactful and long-term. Exactly. I think, like, as a TF artist, you can do anything and anything you want as long as you have a friend group in the background. There's always a good experience. Yeah, no, I, I think I get what you mean. It's, it's a good experience overall. <laughs> Fantastic. So I do have some audience questions for us to kind of chat through. The first one comes from I cannot do any tricks, sadly, uh, which is a very interesting username. Uh, So shout out to that username. And it's about character TF. So they ask, I've talked with other TF fans about character TF before and was surprised to hear some say that they don't understand the appeal at all. How would you go about explaining the appeal of character TF if you do like or at least understand it? And if you don't, what would you speculate the appeal is or imagine it would feel like? Hmm. I think people who like character TF, I think, might like the concept of transformation, but not necessarily themselves. So there is a... You know what? I'm going to go to the example of Batman Beyond. I think I mentioned that earlier in the yeah, yeah. in the show. Like, there's a want of seeing Terry Miles transform into a bat. Oh my god, spoilers. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> and that is their version of a of their TF want or their TF fetish or the things that they like about TF. I even know someone who specifically likes TF, but they don't like TFing themselves, but they like watching people under their control or manipulating other people into TF. And that's kind of like the fun thing of TF. Uh, I think I probably mentioned it earlier, but you get TF and it's personal, but there's also a whole other level of TF where it kind of becomes like a domination thing. Uh, like a master thing where it's like you control someone else TFing. So I think that's kind of where character TF might come from, is that you don't necessarily want to see yourself TF, but like watching... Watching others TF. Yes. Name one other thing that it has someone TF. Uh, okay. I've definitely seen a lot of like April O'Neil TFs, because people like really connect that with like the teenage mutant ninja turtles there you go 
So, like, seeing an April O'Neil TF is, like, that's a whole other thing. Because it's, like, I want to see April O'Neil go. No, I, I, I vibe with that. I know, personally, I I am into character TF from both the lenses of, like, watching characters turn into something and also people turning into specific characters. I think, for me, part of the appeal is when it's someone who's turning into a character, they often have to like grapple with like a bit of a personality shift and sometimes the the ones that i at least enjoy i like the ones that are kind of empowering in the sense of like your mindset shifts to something that's more positive or like more outgoing or that sort of a thing i think that that can be really empowering for a lot of the people who enjoy it and also watching characters tf into other things i guess i would say we have a lot of connection to some of these characters from you know experiencing the media watching it growing up or even like just more recent stuff like watching it and enjoying it and having things or expectations or assumptions that you put on that character so then seeing how they would react to going through some sort of a change that you enjoy can be really interesting just to see from a viewer's perspective and there is a bit of that like domination that comes into play as well because it's like i'm taking this character and i'm making them change into something else so like i am in a weird way as the viewer the one who's in control because i'm dictating what it is that they then become and i think that that appeals to a lot of people as well if people want more of an in-depth explanation as well we talked a lot with um tf central on a on a past episode i think it was like episode three of the first season but if you are interested in someone who really really likes character tf that would be the the thing to listen to because they go very in depth as to what they like about it (laughs) um but yeah um the next question i have is from viger fire and they say there's a lot of masochism in regards to tf you know pain and suffering in the process or aftermath or overall experience so for yourselves, what pain would you endure to experience TF? I will be the first to admit that I am a extreme wimp. <laughs> and that I would totally be the person that would stand up in front of whatever big entity that would TF me. And me being like, do it, do your worst. And then it would probably be five seconds before I was rolling around in pain being like no so i i'm not going to pretend that i'm i uh, have a high tolerance of aches and pains but some of the fun tfs that i they do like in terms of creaky achy pains are um leotinitis oh i hope i pronounced his name right oh yeah a lot of his i just recently uh was reading his monkey in the middle story oh yeah and i really liked his description of just like a slow achy pain like growing a tail and like feet aching and just things like that and maybe i and this feels bad but maybe i feel like a kinship because i have been not drinking enough water this summer and i'm i'm cramping uh after like being in the sun too long so like I come back from uh, sunbathing and I'm like, oh, my feet are aching. I'm like, oh, I'm turning into a monkey. But... <laughs> it's a nice way to think about it. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is this is really hot. And then it becomes like two in the morning and I'm still dehydrating. I'm like, I'm awake and God help me. I'm like, 
<laughs> I need more water. This isn't fun anymore. <laughs> yeah, the 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 self insert has passed, and now I just I am dying. Yeah, like <laughs> we've broken the illusion. Like I'm done here. <laughs> but um, I don't think I have a real high tolerance for pain. I'll enjoy the like creaky bones and like the achy stretching, and I think I enjoy that from like going to like a chiropractor and getting my back cracked and just the the push the the popping crack and the tension and and feeling of of things releasing i think that feels very nice but i don't think i'd want to be like hours and hours of pain while things are stretching out i agree you know i am also a bit of a wimp when it comes to pain and i'll again be the first person to say that i tend to like see hearing or seeing like pain in tfs in the abstract but when it comes to like myself i definitely think there'd be kind of like a an upper limit to what i could endure now if like it came down to brass tacks and someone was like the only way you will experience tf is if it's the most like painful thing you've ever endured but you still get to have tf i would probably say yes like who am i kidding but like in terms of like my idealized amount like I tend to like the TFs that like, yeah, there's some like kind of achiness or like discomfort and such, but like after a certain point, I just want it to be erotic. So like, you know, uh, the, the pain's fine up to a point and then I'm like, eh, let's just make it horny now. So. Yeah, exactly. Like you get to a point where like, ah, I'm tired now. Like, let's, let's get this over with. I, I want my prize. Yeah, exactly. Like, come on, this is what it's working up to. Right. So, Yeah. And um, so then the last question I have here is from Spunky the TF Skunky, excellent handle, and he asks, on the podcast you mentioned, uh, so this is in a previous episode, you know, you can draw X and just decide to ignore the Y aspect of it when talking about taking spiders and turning them into your own unique spin on the species. So my question is, how much can you detract from a species before it loses its look or uniqueness? So, for example, does a two-legged anthro insect even count as one anymore? Uh, I'll take a stab at this one first. I think that um, in the context of what we were talking about, we were kind of talking about just like iterating on species that you might not like and then turning them into something you, you could. But I think, you know, thinking about the question more broadly, generally there are a number of things that you can probably take away from a species in a transformation and still like say it falls under that umbrella um i think it really just comes down to what is considered the core trait for something so like for example if you become a i'm going to use this example because it's on my brain if you become a red panda but you don't have the tail um, and you just have the fur patterning that's probably fine, even if the tail is a big part of it. But like, if you start subtracting more and more things, like it's like you don't have the tail, you don't have like the ear tufts, you don't even have like the fur patterning. After a certain point, it definitely just stops becoming a quote-unquote red panda, and it's just kind of like your own thing. And to be fair, I think that's fine. Like any sort of like TF end goal that you have is fine but for the purposes of defining it yeah i think there's a there's a few core traits that every species kinds of has and if you lose like more than one or two of them then it starts to get into territory where it's not really that species anymore this is kind of a hard one to to wrap my head around because i mean you can always do a 
artistic interpretation of a, a species. And that might be like a red panda without the tail, just in general. And in, and in the context of this question, like a, a spider without so many legs. I think if you find a way to represent that species in the final form, I think it holds together. Like, if you're transforming into a spider, and spider's supposed to have eight legs, and it, you end up being a quadrupedal for, or a bipedal form, so you just have two legs and two arms, but you have, like, designs on your side that represent the missing legs. Like, that works. So I wouldn't necessarily, like, go on and defining a limit between a different species, but I think it's a case-by-case basis. Because you can just do amazing things. But the person who designed synths... Oh, yeah. I don't remember the name. I'm incredibly sorry. I love synths. Like, extremely well. But, like, they are dragons. And, like, okay, like, that's a difference. But you don't have to be like, oh, every single thing is needs to be qualified as a difference. Also, side note, if someone wants to commission me for a synth, please do. I've been asking for two years. <laughs> is it Nader? I think it might be Nader. Okay. I think uh, it might be Nader. Nader, I, I'm a big fan of yours. <laughs> so I guess, you know, everyone's hard to hear now. The next time you open for commissions, if they want to guarantee a slot, they need to put in a synth TF commission. I'm not confirming that, but I am confirming that. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> well, that was all the questions I had for today. Did you have any questions for me before we sign off? I wanted to ask, how's your summer been going? You know what? It's been going great. I uh, got to go to Anthrocon, which was a blast. I've gotten some great commissions back. I've done some great manips of my own, which has been great. I actually moved places, which was also fantastic. And yeah, it's actually been a really nice summer so far. Um, Thank you for asking. (laughs) What's your favorite thing about your new place? The fact that I live alone. Um, that's probably my favorite, but like, honestly, I think the ability to just like inhabit my space and enact whatever TF fantasy I have whenever I want is a big part of the appeal. And also, um, I'm finally like living like downtown in the city that I've lived in, which is a long-term goal I've had. So both of those are, are pretty awesome. And I think those are both like tied for like my favorite aspects. Are you going to set up a a permanent photo setup where you can just do a TF photo shoot whenever you need? Honestly, maybe. I like I've looked around at like my place and I'm sure this will show up in like when I start taking using stock from the new place, but like there's a few spots that I think are ideal from like a lighting perspective to take stock from and y'all will probably see those spots and be like, ah, that's what he settled on. That's what they're using now. Um, so I, I don't know if it's going to be necessarily a quote unquote permanent space because like I do have like a limited amount of space to like utilize, but I certainly know which spots I'm going to be using. That's for sure. Get a little green screen and away you go. Yeah, exactly. I, I still have to get a green screen, honestly. That would probably help a lot because um, usually it's just like, you know, the wall or whatever is the background (laughs) and (laughs) if i have to put it somewhere else then you have to do the whole editing out thing and matching up the lighting which honestly can be exhausting so i feel you i feel you well thank you so much for coming on i really enjoyed 
chatting with you. Where can our wonderful listeners find you if they're looking for more of your stuff? Uh, if you want to find more of my stuff, and I have no idea why you'd want to, uh, <laughs> you can find me at Fur Affinity uh, at Kieran, K-E-R-U-N. I'm on Twitter at Kieran Draws, uh, same spelling, but just D-R-A-W-S at the end. Um, I'm on Patreon. Uh, you can go to KieranDraws.com to get some cool merch. Uh, including stickers and t-shirts i said t-shirts and i'm not sure you can get t-shirts uh <laughs> so one two th- you can get t-shirts oh wait no you can get a letterman jacket you can't get t-shirts but you oh. can get something better you can get a letterman that's jacket better. but yeah um that's about it you can just find me and haunt me and try to find me like where's waldo on the internet and don't you have like a TF sticker pack too for like Telegram? I do have a TF sticker pack for Telegram. Yeah. Let me figure out what that TF sticker pack is. I remember this because some of the my commissions are in it. So yes, I'm just gonna subtly plug that. Uh, so I on Telegram, if you would like to add my TF Telegram stickers, you can go to t.me slash add stickers slash kieran tf k-e-r-u-n-t-f fantastic well thank you so much again for coming on and i'm looking forward to all the future content you'll be uh, pumping out awesome well thank you for having me on it's been a, a pleasure to be on i've been a long time listener first time caller <laughs> i'm really glad to hear that Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of the TF Tuesday podcast. We'll be coming to your ear holes again next week. And uh, in the meantime, stay hydrated and uh, stay TFE. Thanks, everyone. Mm-hmm.